Corey asked me the other day, he said, do you ever feel sad when you come to the end of a chapter like John 6? And the answer is yes, because we've been here for a number of weeks now, and there's been so much, so many treasures that we have mined out of this particular passage. It it feels like saying goodbye to an old friend. Uh, It's become so precious and familiar, at least to me, and I understand I have the unfair advantage and benefit of getting to spend more time with it than perhaps you have, although I would love you to spend that much time in it with me. But it has been a great chapter, hasn't it? The Lord has certainly revealed the glories of who He is through it, and we conclude this morning with the last few verses. We find Peter giving, as he does in Matthew chapter 16, a great confession. We read this beginning in verse 66. As a result of this, meaning Jesus' teaching, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you? The twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Father, help us now as we come to your word this morning. As the hymn says, Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me. We pray, Father, this morning that you would break the bread of life to us. Open it before us. Feed us from it. And cause us to be strengthened for the glory of God by it. We ask this all and only for the sake of Jesus, our King, our Head, and our Savior. Amen. Well, this has not been just a great chapter in the truths that have been exposed, but it has been a a great chapter in diagnosing humanity, hasn't it? The scene before us in verses 66 through 71 actually form what I think are one of the most tragic scenes in Jesus' earthly ministry in, in terms of sheer revelation and sheer truth that it communicates. I don't know that anything is more tragic other than maybe the crucifixion. As we see Jesus rejected by those who had been following him. These people, these fallen human beings, these sinners like you and I, have not only been exposed to the truth, but they have been offered the very bread of life itself. That they might come to know Christ, that they might live and not die. And yet, in the face of having their sin exposed and having the bread of life, the answer to their sin offered, the crowds turn away. That, that's, it's almost unthinkable to us. F.F. F. Bruce says this, 
What they wanted, Jesus would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. That, brothers and sisters, is a tragedy. What they wanted, Jesus would not give, and what he offered, they would not receive. What we find before us this morning is, in reality, a repentance from the truth. A repentance from the truth. The word repentance literally meaning to turn away from and to turn to something else. It's not merely a a change of mind. It's a change of direction. A change of life. And here, the bread of life is offered to them. We, We think of repentance as occurring only in relation to sin. But there is a sense, and these people embody that, in which one may turn away from truth. And they do. Here is Jesus, the the bread of life, the Lamb of God offered to them, and they turn away to go pursue their own lust and their own ideals of what it is to have life. It is a reversion from life. I mentioned in the Sunday school hour to you adults that the, the spirit of the age is one of deconstruction. It seems that not a week goes by that we don't read of some notable figure in Christianity at large deconstructing their faith and walking away from the God of Scripture. That's seen as progressive and enlightened somehow in our day and in our age. And yet the reality is this, that is not progressive, that is not enlightened at all. It is the the, the darkest and the worst form of regression, not progression. To walk away from the light of God, from the bread of life. So that we are presented here in this final scene of John chapter 6. Before a brief interlude in Jesus' ministry. Before chapter 7 picks up and begins. We find the sadness of these people walking Away. We see the dramatic results of what man's sinfulness brings and what the sovereign work of God can do. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, there is a catastrophic result. Jesus says this as a result of this. What is the this referring to? It refers to the sum total of all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has been saying for the entirety of this chapter. As a result of this, many of his disciples, again, John's use of sarcasm here, they're not disciples. Disciples are those who absorb and imbibe of the teacher's message. They're not doing that. They're pushing it away. Those who appeared to be disciples, however, have withdrawn And we're not walking with him anymore, proving that they were not ever truly disciples. They haven't fallen away. They never made it. Regardless what the outward appearance would appear to be, they have not been Jesus' disciples. So that this refers to the sum total of chapter 6. And when you have time, I would just encourage you, go back and read chapter 6 After we leave this morning, 
and be reminded of what this refers to. But we can synthesize the this down into three major offenses that in their mind Jesus has committed. Number one, Jesus is God. Very simple. We take it for granted, right? Jesus is God. But to them, this is not clear, nor is it wanted. They don't want to be clear on the matter. They don't want Jesus to be God, chiefly because Jesus is not doing what they think God should do. And in that age, that would involve political maneuverings and the overthrow of their oppressors and Uh, miracles on demand and Jesus is not doing these things he is not God in the sense that they want a Messiah so they are offended by his unequivocal pronouncement that he is God secondly they are offended by Jesus statement that he and his life must be appropriated to them by faith alone in order to live and that their works do not profit anything. I think one of the most astounding statements is, again, as I've mentioned several times, but you remember when they say to Jesus, tell us what we should do to be able to work the works of God. You know, we, we, we again, we, we have fulfilled the law so perfectly. Give us more to do, Jesus. And Jesus says, All that you have done matters not at all. You must come and you must appropriate my life, my righteousness to yours by faith alone. And abandon your self-righteousness. They don't like that. Third, Jesus offends them. By saying that it is only by a work of the Father through the Spirit drawing them to the Son that they can come and receive the true and living bread. They don't want to hear that. Why? It undercuts works. They have nothing to boast of if this is true. And so they are offended in these three points. Jesus doesn't fit the stereotype of the Messiah. Jesus has done away with their self-righteousness. And then he has had the audacity to tell them that there is literally nothing that they can do to conjure up faith and desire in order to come to Jesus whom they have no desire for. It's self-evident, but it's still offensive. When we tell people that today, it's offensive. It's clear that the scripture says it, but that doesn't make it any less offensive to our pride. And that is what is being destroyed here before our eyes is the pride and the prejudices of these people. Because of these things, the crowd leaves. They abandon Jesus. Life stands before them and they choose death. Jesus freely offers himself to them and they turn and leave. For those of us in the Bible Belt, that seems unthinkable. Doesn't everyone want Jesus? Doesn't everybody love Jesus? Isn't Jesus the desire of every person in Midland, Texas's heart? I mean, it is Midland, Texas, after all. Who wouldn't want Jesus? And, you know, that, that's a fair question for, for those of us who have 
done what Psalm 34 verse 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I can't fathom someone not wanting Christ. But the truth is, no one is born wanting Christ. No one. To to think that everybody really wants Jesus, they're just a little misguided, is to completely underestimate the depth of depravity that exists in every one of us. It takes an actual miracle for any of us to desire Christ. As much as the feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle, so too is every sinner who desires Christ. It is because God has raised the dead to life. He's granted a desire for His Son. He has granted the faith to believe in His Son. Nobody wants Jesus in their natural state. Romans 3.10 For it is written, there is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek for God. Nobody in their sinful state wants Christ. Michael Horton in his book, Putting Amazing Back into Grace. I've used the illustration before, but it's a good one. Nobody desires Christ. Just as a burglar does not desire to see a policeman in the middle of the act. Why? Because God's righteousness and His holiness condemns our sin, condemns us. In Christ, the the Holy One of God, the incarnation of God, God of very God, come in human form, reveals man's depravity. They don't want Him. And so it is that as Jesus has said, as Jesus will continue to say, apart from God intervening, this is the response of all sinners to Christ. To withdraw. To leave. Because we don't desire Him. Nobody comes to Jesus because they wanted to. They may think they wanted to, but they want to because, as Jesus says, they've been drawn. They've been changed. They have a new heart and a new desire that expresses faith that did not exist previous to this. The the term withdrew is a vivid term. It means to to move away, to, to go away, to abandon an association with someone. They went back. Jesus ceased to scratch the itch to satisfy their desires. And so they are no longer walking with Jesus as they once had. Though it had been outward, it was never inward. And we look at this and we say, wow. It's it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. It's painful to watch someone do this. And perhaps you know someone that has done this. And odds are that in a group this size that more than a few of you have had someone very close to you do this. And it's 
very painful to, to watch this happen. But though it was outward, it was never inward. And we say to ourselves, having been raised on the version of American Christianity that we so many of us have been, but that just seems cruel that God wouldn't just, you know, condescend to them, give them what they want. You know, that he would just choose some and draw some and, and, and others aren't. It's really seems like God is a little callous here that Jesus even, I mean, Jesus even seems a little calloused. And, and we might wonder, does that not grieve the heart of God? That these people have done this as it does us? You know, the answer to that, brothers and sisters, is that just because Jesus had pr- pronounced difficult statements that you can't come to him unless you're drawn. We tend to read that as an either or. Well, then God doesn't care about the lost. No, God very much cares about the lost. It grieves the heart of God when people withdraw from him. It, it brings him no pleasure. We learn from Ezekiel 33 verse 11, Say to them, as I live declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. God is not at all happy about these people abandoning him. This is the life, however, that Adam and Eve chose and in their choosing handed it off to us. We have become the inheritors of their mess. We don't want it as Christians, but we have inherited it and thank God Jesus came and the Father by the Spirit drew us out of it. God intervened. Is Jesus saddened by this? There is no doubt that he is heavy hearted and saddened by this. I refer you to John 11. It'll take us a while to get there, but we will, Lord willing. But Jesus, God of God, truly God and truly man, stands out over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps. He weeps. And some might say, well, he wept because he's about to die. That is not why Jesus weeps. Jesus tells us why he weeps. Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. You who have killed the prophets, I would have gathered you under my wings. I came to redeem you. He's not weeping because he's about to endure all of the fury of hell itself. He is weeping. That they have not come to him. He is weeping for the natural progression of sin that has been played out among his own people. Does Jesus say what he says in this portion of scripture in John 6? Does he say it lightly? Not at all. However, is Jesus surprised by this? No, he is not. He's not surprised in the least. 
There are a group of people still with Jesus. We call them the twelve. The twelve disciples of Jesus. The eleven who would go on and be the apostles that we know so well. And so there is the, the departure of the carnal. The departure of those not called. And you have to look at this and you have to say, this is, this is actually quite astounding. Because while it's probable that there are more than just 12 standing there, there's not very many. There are not very many who stayed with Jesus. The vast majority turned from Jesus. That's why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, says that it is the called. There there are are many called, and this is in other places, many are called, but few are chosen. Many have heard the message. They've heard the call go out, but they've not been chosen and appointed to life, and so they leave Jesus doing what fallen human beings do. And so Jesus, having now been rid of the crowds, he turns and he focuses his examination now on the twelve. He turns to testing them. And he looks at the twelve and he says, You do not want to go away also, do you? The inference is, You don't want to scuttle my teaching, do you? You don't want to reject my teaching, do you? Are you leaving Are you going to follow the way of the world? Now listen. I hope you know and I think you all do. Jesus is not looking for information. Jesus never asked a question that he didn't already know the answer for. Because he is omniscient God. He did not lay aside his deity in taking on humanity. Jesus knows everything. He's written the script. He's numbered the hairs on their head. Of course he knows that they're not leaving except one, and he mentions him. But he he sets up the scenario. He, He sets up the examination to elicit two things. One, a confession. Two, content. He wants to hear their confession, solidifying what it is exactly that they believe. And he wants to then affirm and teach further on the matter. Jesus asked for those reasons. He tests their faith. Testing is good. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Test yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Jesus does that even to the twelve. Now, what occurs in his questioning will not only reveal the surface answer to what they believe, but Jesus will then go on and explain to them why it is exactly that they believe that. That's amazing, isn't it? I don't want to just hear what you believe. I'm going to tell you why you believe it. I just want to solidify this thing once and for all. So that that when you leave here, you'll know why you believe and you will 
not be tempted to give praise in the wrong direction. Jesus asks a question, you don't want to go away also, do you? It, it, it anticipates the negative response. No, absolutely not, Jesus. No way. It's expected. He, he asks it in such a way. And he does it so that he can, again, instruct and invite them into a deeper understanding of what he says. And who should answer but their spokesman, Peter? And Peter violates the first rules of debate. Don't answer a question with a question. Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter doesn't say, <laughs> no, although that's what he's saying. But he answers it with a question. Lord, to whom shall we go? Literally, where would I go other than Jesus? Where would I go? I've been to the synagogues, grew up in them. I've heard the law and I've done my best to keep it. I can't. Where do you really think I'm going to go? You can almost imagine Peter getting a little indignant. Don't you know? You, he says, have the words of life. You have living words. Nobody else has that. You know, Jesus is helping Peter write his first sermon or one of his first sermons. I was reflecting a few days ago about the first sermon I ever wrote. I remember sitting at my Sunday school teacher's kitchen table, 14 years old, him showing me how to use commentaries, how to use concordances and different things, and I was just thrilled by the process. Jesus is preparing Peter for one of his early sermons in Acts 4. Where Peter concludes in verse 12 by saying this, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Where would we go, Lord? There is no other name. That's right, Peter. That's right. I just want to hear you say it. I know it. I want to know that you know it. I want to know that you've got the backbone to confess it. Peter, I want you to to prepare to preach because this is, Peter, the rest of your life. You have one sermon. This is it. There is no other one to whom we can go. Christ alone has the word of life. Peter in verse 68 summarizes the whole of Jesus' life, who he is, and of his ministry, what he came to do, to give life. To give life. Every seminary professor who teaches preaching would be thrilled with Peter. In one sentence, he stated very clearly the theme of the whole sermon. 
he passes homiletics 101. Jesus is the only one begotten from the Father. The only one who has come from the Father. The only one who knows the Father. The only one who can accurately represent who God is and tell us who God is and what He is like. Who else could Peter and and the other eleven turn to who bears that distinction? The answer is no one. As we said last week, that there have been plenty who have uh, imagined themselves to be Messiahs who quote-unquote, ascend to Jesus. But there's never been anyone who has descended from God and gone back to God. That alone belongs to Christ. Where would we go? Let me ask you a question. Where will you go? Where will you go? Where will you look for words of life? You know, Satan never stops or tires of his ceaseless work of creating doubt and doing even to believers his best to lead them astray. So so don't think for a minute that we don't need to be challenged on this point as well. Where are you going to go? Better question, where are you at right now? What are you listening to? Whom are you listening to? I can tell you this, there is only one person who has words of life and that is Jesus Christ there are many good books but live in the Bible Spurgeon said who do you listen to go to the source the fountain as Peter says who will you listen to Lord where where would we go what a silly question there is no one else Hey, here's a little pro tip in your evangelism. When people hear you lovingly plead with them to come to Christ, and they say, no, I don't think I will, but thank you very much. You need to stop them before they leave and ask them this serious but pleading question. Well, then where will you go? I need to know, where will you go? Where else has this message of forgiveness from sin? Where are you going to go? I need to know. You need to tell me. Where do you intend to go? You need to be reminded, dear friend, that death is certain. And it is not only certain, but it is imminent. It could be today. Young people, it could be today. It could be today. Where are you going to go? To whom will you turn for life? Where will you find pardon in the face of perfect judgment? Because God is going to judge you. You better go to someone who not only offers life, but pardon for life. I need to know, where are you going? Peter says, I'm not going anywhere. 
Because there is nowhere else to go. The words that Jesus speak lead to and do, as Peter says, provide life. Go back to verse 63. Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Emphatic. It is spirit. It is life. In Jesus' incarnation, we read in verse 1 of chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. What is God? He is life in himself. What do words do? They speak out of and communicate what is in the innermost being of a person. Therefore, when Jesus came, he is speaking life as God. The only source of words that lead to life are the words of Jesus that testify to Jesus. And notice the contrast that Jesus begins to get into here. Those whom the Father has drawn, he will go on to clarify this further. Those whom the Father has drawn, rather than running from Jesus, the word of life, they run to Jesus, the word of life even in the face of difficult times and difficult truth. They're going to Jesus. Peter says, now we have come to believe, and we have come to know. We've come to believe this, and we have come to believe it in such a way that we are convinced of this. This is the foundational creed of Christianity. We believe in Jesus Christ, the Almighty, the Son of God, descended, crucified, risen. These are the the foundational things that Peter says... Through through your ministry, through your teaching, we have come to believe this. This is not just, yeah, I believe that. God save us from casual Christianity. God save us from casual, creedal Christianity. Yeah, I believe that. You can walk down the street in Midland, Texas today, and 9.9 out of 10 people will go, yeah, I believe that. No, no, we need Peter's confession. We need Peter's. I am convinced. I am convinced. You can kill me for it. This is the hill I will die on, and it was. I'm convinced. Are you convinced? That's the question you have to answer this morning, and only you can answer. Are you convinced and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter uh, pronounced in Matthew chapter 16. And the longer you know Jesus, and the longer you hear Jesus, the more convinced you become. You, you, you know what's exciting? New believers. Right? Right? 
New believers with their joy, with their enthusiasm, with their, they've just discovered this joy and we, and we rejoice at that and we take, I mean, does that not energize us? It does, doesn't it? Should. You know what's even better than the joy of a new believer? The joy of an old believer. The joy of someone who's walked with Jesus for a long time. The, the, the joy of a new believer, it's embryonic. It's, it's full of passion. It's still undeveloped. But, but, but take an old saint who's walked with the Lord for decades. And there's a joy that can't be taken away. There's a joy that's been tried by fire. There's a joy for whom Jesus is everything. Like the old hymn says, I love to tell the story because those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Peter has that kind of old man's faith. I'm convinced. Does it mean it's perfect? We know that's not the case. Peter's faith will still struggle, but he's convinced. He has confidence. He has settled conviction. I want to refer you back now to Matthew 16. You can turn there and look at it. Matthew 16 is a very similar confession that Peter gives there. Jesus, again, against the backdrop of all the other gods in Caesarea Philippi says to his disciples, who do you say that? I know who men say that I am, but who do you say that I am? You see, it's important that you answer this question, guys. I'm not interested in what the Gallup poll says or what Barna says people think about me. I want to know what you say about me. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You see, Simon Bar-Jonah is Peter's name that Jesus uses when Jesus wants to get across the fleshly nature of Peter. (laughs) And he says, Very good. Blessed are you, Simon. That seems interesting. He's pronouncing a blessing on someone who is carnal. It's not what he's doing. He's drawing contrast and comparison because notice what he says. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't come up with this as Simon Barjona. You came up with this as Peter. Why? Why? Flesh and blood could not have, Simon Barjona could not have come up with this equation, this confession. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you didn't, you didn't do this on your own. 
You didn't come to me. You didn't come to believe this, to be convinced, to be filled with joy over this on your own. It had to come from somewhere else. It sounds an awful lot like verse 70 of John 6. Peter makes his confession in verses 68 and 69. We believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, the one sent down from God, the Messiah of God. And Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you? Just like saying, my father is the one who revealed this to you. Peter, you ask the right questions in response because I have chosen you. I have brought you to this God-caused response. Listen, brothers and sisters, fallen men cannot see such truths. And they certainly will not confess such truths. This is something only God can do. And they certainly will not do it in the face of difficulty if they think it will cost them something. This must be a God-wrought work in our hearts. This is God causing the response. If man causes a response, it doesn't look anything like this. It looks like those who walked away. But when God causes the response, When God has done the drawing, when God has chosen them, that's why they're still there. And brothers and sisters, if we are still with Jesus at the end of our life, if we are still confessing what Peter confesses here at the end of our life, it is not us, but God through us. Remember that. We persevere because we've been preserved by a holy calling. Jesus reminds them they have been chosen by him, that they are still here because of him. They make such a confession because of him. If he is the one from God, he will exercise the ultimate prerogatives of God, and he has done so by choosing them. Now, you may say, no, hang on, time out. He's talking about choosing them as apostles. Well, let's take that for a moment and consider that. Is that what Jesus means by his choosing? And I would submit to you it is not. Let me back that up. While it is true that Jesus chose his apostles, this is not that. Jesus chooses them for a predetermined end, which is life. That is the context. You have words of life. This is the context of Jesus uh, talking about the Father choosing and drawing for the, the, the chapter, all of chapter 6 leading up to this. This is not God choosing them to be apostles, and they chose him for salvation. This isn't it at all. The context is clear. This is life that they have been chosen to. Now, it is true That Jesus does choose his apostles. But there is the antithesis again. It's a bookend that the crowd leaves Jesus at the beginning of this conversation. And now Judas is mentioned. He will leave Jesus at the end of the conversation. 
And he will do so because in God's sovereign choosing, he chooses not only those who are going to live, he chooses those whom he will reprobate. He did it to Pharaoh. He did it to Judas. He says, listen, I chose all of you, the twelve, and yet one of you I chose for a different purpose. Judas is not an accident. Judas is not an accident. Judas didn't go off the rails. Judas played a predetermined part in the divine plan of God. The word used for Judas here, devil, is diabolos. Technically, the word means one who accuses. It's most often used for Satan. Judas is the embodiment of Satan. He is God's devil. God owns him by right of creation. God owns his actions by right of reprobation. He is the embodiment of Satan himself. Jesus says, I control nature. I've fed 20,000 people, 5,000 men, plus all those who came with him. I control nature. I walked on the sea in the middle of a storm. I am sovereign over all. I am sovereign down to who will reject me and who will accept me. Who can do that but God? No one. What the disciples need to learn. What we need to learn is this. God reigns. God reigns. His son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, reigns. He will accomplish all of his purposes. Psalm 115.3, the Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Jesus has done whatever he pleases. It may look like to the, to, to the twelve, it may look like to you that Jesus somehow failed because all the crowds went away. Jesus didn't fail. Everything is right on schedule as it was planned. God chooses, God wins, God reigns. Bread and fish for 20,000 people out of five loaves and two fish? Well, that's something to be sure. The fact that God sovereignly out of sheer grace and mercy, chooses any to become convinced and believe in him? Now that's a miracle. That's a miracle. As Martin Luther said, I am a brand plucked from the fire. We deserve to burn. But God, in Christ, has worked a miracle. In everyone who believes. Are you repenting away from Jesus or toward Jesus?
Who do you say that he is? Why can you say that? On what basis and with what confidence do you say that? All of those must be answered in one thing. Jesus is king. Jesus is God. He must be bowed to and submitted to as such, believed on as such. To refuse to do so like the crowds is to incur his judgment and his condemnation. May God find us believing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your penetrating questions, such as you ask to the disciples. I pray, Father, that we would have the heart and the mind of Peter. God, that you would call all who hear my voice to salvation, to repentance away from the world and to Christ, rather than repenting from Christ and going to the world as the crowds did. Call sinners to salvation, fathers. Call them and convince them as you did with Peter. Grant them faith to believe that is unnatural to fallen men. Grant to them the righteousness that can only come from Christ that is equally as alien to us as faith is unless you work. And so work sovereign and mighty God to convince people, to draw people, break us of our pride and bring us to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.